I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very, very special episode that we are having today. My guest is Christina Grasso. And Christina is one of the co-founders of a nonprofit organization called The Chain. It is a nonprofit organization to help people in the fashion industry and the entertainment industry that are struggling with eating disorders. The other part of this episode that is so powerful is Christina comes through with ultimate courage and vulnerability and shares with the listeners that she, due to the pandemic, started sliding back and ended up back in treatment about five months ago. What courage it took for her to get on this show and say this. I am incredibly proud of her. She is not alone in how the pandemic has affected people's mental health and their eating disorders. So this is a really rich show. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. You all have no idea how honored I am to be doing this particular episode. I would first like to introduce all of you to our guest, Christina Grasso. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to have you here for so many reasons. One, it's wonderful to see your face again. Christina and I worked together years ago when uh, I was clinical director at a residential program and Christina was doing social media, which God love her. She knows I don't fully understand it, but love the work that she does that I do understand. Uh, Christina is currently still doing social media, working in the fashion industry. And so why I'm so excited to have her on the program and then I'm going to let Christina talk is for a few reasons. One, we never really delve into the fashion industry, the modeling industry, things like that, how social media can have positive or negative consequences to people that are struggling. And then the other part of the interview is Christina bravely talking on the podcast that she's had a tough year. And I'm really proud of her for what she has done, which has gone back to treatment, for saying the pandemic has been very difficult for her and 
coming to a place where she can talk about it and talk about it with vulnerability and courage. So again, Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself than what I said? Because I probably got it a little wrong where I'm like social media, you know, fashion industry. Tell the listeners about yourself. Yeah, so I um, grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a very small town. And for some reason, I always just knew that I wanted to live in New York City and I wanted to work in fashion from the time that I was probably five years old. Um, And then I went to college in Indiana and I studied communications and I also studied Italian. And then I moved to New York City straight away after college where I began my career And it's been about 10 years since I moved here and started working full-time in fashion and beauty. And of course, within, as Karen mentioned, um, within that time and before then, I have struggled pretty profoundly with an eating disorder. And over the past decade, I've been in and out of treatment centers multiple times. Um, So yes, it's been an interesting journey, but definitely a very rewarding one. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the other things that I didn't say in your introduction, and neither did you, is that you are the co-founder of a really powerful nonprofit called The Chain, and you are the co-founder with Ruthie Friedlander. I hope I said that properly. And that is a place to support people in the industry, and correct me if I'm wrong, modeling or entertainment that have either struggled or are struggling with eating disorders. And where do we begin with that, Christina? How did that come about? Because I would imagine you're getting emails off the charts. And at the same time, I also wonder if there's any controversy with some of the clothing designers or anything like that for you providing this. So any thoughts? I know that was a lot. Yeah. I guess the the inspiration for this organization really started years and years ago when I first entered the industry and was under the impression that I had to, in a sense, be in my eating disorder to be successful in my industry, at the same time realizing that being sick was keeping me out of my work. Um, so several years down the line, it was about three years ago, my co-founder, who had also been in this industry a long time, but I had never formally met, had written an essay for InStyle talking about her own recovery and how it relates to her work and is complicated by her work in the fashion industry. And I kind of just sent a DM over Instagram saying like, hey, Ruthie, I loved your piece. I'm always here for you, that kind of thing. And we got to talking and really decided that there was such a need among our peers and colleagues for a resource that really understood exactly what they were going through, understood the intricacies of, you know, the ins and outs of our work and the heightened triggers and challenges that come along with our line of work. And we wanted to be able to support them in the same way that we had supported each other. And we also wanted to serve as a forward-facing resource for the people with whom we work, whether it be brands or publications who want and to address this subject and do so in a responsible way. And so we kind of have like a two-prong 
mission at this point. And so it's been about three years since we've been around and the work has been deeply rewarding for both of us and such just like a weird full circle moment to be addressing an issue that has been such a problem within our industry for a very long time. So I know from talking with you that I didn't even think about all the people that were affected that do something like say work on a fashion shoot, you know, and by the way, we're going to talk about how the the rest of the world perceives now what the ideal body is like. But, you know, you and I were talking and you said there are editors that are getting sample clothing. I'm sorry, clothing in sample sizes that as social media, you're constantly around these. And, and I don't mean to say all models are emaciated. So please hear me. I'm not making a generalization, but it's pretty big in the industry, that there are so many other people in the industry, the day in and day out of it, that are severely impacted. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the um, messages and emails that we've received are from people who are not only models, but, you know, photographers, editors, um, producers, interns, just it affects everyone. Um, And that's not to say that fashion is causing eating disorders because we of course know that it's much more complicated than that but it definitely doesn't make the recovery process any easier and it really does reinforce just like this value of being a certain size and you know through treatment you're taught time and time and again that you know everyone's body has a set point and that you don't really get to choose your weight and then you go back to work and you're faced with what is still the standard. Not to say that the industry hasn't made a lot of improvements and strides. They definitely have, but they also have a long way to go. So we are proud to be um, some of the many people working toward change. Yeah. I I remember reading in an, one of the articles that you were quoted in and I, and, and I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but it was something about, you know, I don't want a disorder to dictate the fact that I love the industry, meaning, you know, you love fashion, you love social media, you love all these things. And so I, that, that one quote just really stuck out to me because I guess my question is, is how do you do it? Because I agree and, and, and I also want to say, from what I imagine, not everybody in the fashion industry is obsessed with just the body. There's, there's material, there's designs, there's all these beautiful parts of it. So how, do you, how did you separate yourself from it? Yeah, I think it really, for me, I look back to when I was a little girl, I was, you know, five or six years old in love with fashion, and that had nothing to do with body types or thinness or anything. I just loved the clothing. I loved what I, of course, what a five-year-old knows about an industry, which is not much, but I think that like very childlike curiosity that I had about fashion. And I look back on that and realize like, I loved it long before my eating disorder and I want to be able to love it, you know, long after. And so it's really been a reckoning, a reckoning for me to kind of delve into the work and realize that 
it'll make my life much more challenging to continue to do this work. That being said, it's what I love. It what energy it's what energizes me and gives me a sense of purpose. And I feel like it would be a shame to just give it up because of this disease that I didn't ask for. So it's kind of like getting my revenge on the eating disorder in a way. Like I love my work and you're not going to stop me from doing it. I know this might sound like an odd question, but has your organization or the movement that you're doing, has it been met with any resistance? Meaning, are there any designers out there that are saying, don't mess with what we have? Or are there any, you know, by the way, the people that are struggling with eating disorders are probably afraid to reach out to you because of what that might mean for their industry, which we'll talk about in a moment, but has it been met with any resistance? You know, not a whole lot. I would say that I think it takes so much courage for someone to reach out to us um, who wants a sense of community. Um, We haven't really had much resistance. I'd say the only resistance we get is from someone who kind of argues that you know, eating disorders aren't exclusive to people working in fashion, which is 100% the truth. That being said, both Ruthie and I in our treatment experiences would sometimes have to really filter what we'd say in group just because some of the content of our daily life would be triggering to others. And we wanted to create that space specifically for our colleagues so that they could really talk in a way that we all understood and wasn't triggering to other people who don't do this work. So it's not supposed to be like an exclusive group by any means. It's just a highly specific means of um, addressing this issue. And by the way, you're right. There is never one thing that is the cause of an eating disorder. And that being said, we also both know there are some industries or professions that do have a higher probability that still doesn't mean that everybody's going to get an eating disorder you know we're t- when you're talking about athletes and gymnasts and rowers yes there is a high probability modeling the entertainment industry but that doesn't mean it's not everybody who enters those professions ends up with an eating disorder my other question as you were speaking about the people that reached out to you I'm wondering if there are people that are, have reached out to you, but then been like, please don't tell anyone that I did like meaning not wanting the exposure, because what would that say about their, their intention in the, in the field? Definitely. And I also think that there are a lot of people who reach out and then kind of are to, you know, kind of get scared to come to one of our events or, have further conversations with us. That being said, when we do have our groups, everybody signs a confidentiality agreement because that is so important to us. And, you know, we're here because we know the struggle and we also know that a lot of people are in a place where they're not ready to tell other people in their life, um, especially their colleagues or people they work with. So yes, definitely. I know this is probably like the million dollar question that you and Ruthie get quite frequently, but what do you tell somebody who's in your group who's saying, I've been in the fashion industry since I was 12. I'm now 20. Um, this this is my own, like, I don't 
A, feel like I have another identity, which we know is not true. But, and if I want to stay in this field, this industry, I don't have an option, which by the way, you and I both know the option is, is that if the only way to stay in the industry is through potentially dying, then you can't be in the industry. That's very easy for you and I to say that in an interview when, you know, we're in different places. I think that as the years progress, the industry has, there's like a modeling anymore isn't just tall and skinny. I think there have been a lot, a a lot of other um, avenues that people can take. And a lot of agencies are becoming much more celebratory of other body shapes and heights and sizes. And thank God for that. Um, You know, we're never sure of what the intentions of that are, but at the same time, we know that representation is so important. And so I'm glad to see that progress being made. And I think that there are many more options now than there were, say, in the early aughts when there was one type of model um, and that was runway. So I think that thankfully we have reached a point where um, to be a model anymore isn't um, synonymous with being six foot tall and very thin. Do you mind me asking, and you might not want to answer this, but when you said the agencies are are celebrating, and I'm paraphrasing, celebrating more body sizes, but you also said, I don't know what their intentions are. Well, I think that I'm always wary of, there's like a bandwagon effect. And I just am, I'm a very intentional person and I like things to come from the right place. And you just wonder if they're doing it because everyone else is doing it or if they truly believe that's the right thing to be doing. It's, it's interesting. That is, that is what I thought you were referring to, but I, I wanted to, to confirm that, you know, I, I like you am very intentional. I am very thoughtful with things that I do before I do them. And this may make no sense whatsoever. But it reminds me of when sometimes people say I came into treatment and I don't want to get over my eating disorder. I'm doing it for, you know, Joe Schmo. And I say, I don't care who you're doing it for, because eventually my hope is that it's going to change and you're doing it for you. Is there anything maybe similar in that idea of, you know, they may not be bringing in diversity because they actually believe in it, but hopefully they will start believing in it? Or did I just pull that out of nothing? No, I think that's a definite possibility. And that's, of course, what I hope to see happen. I, you know, don't, you know, bodies aren't a trend. They shouldn't be. And I want to see more and more body types, more and more, you know, gender expressions, more of everything represented in this field, because, I mean, it's about time. And that's just a reflection of the real world. And I think that um, that's what needs to happen and what I hope continues to happen. It's, yeah, it's, I feel like it's in an, it's infancy stages of beginning to turn. Where do you want to see it go? Do you know? I don't really know, but I, what I want to see is I want to be be able to, for instance, see little girls open a magazine and see someone who looks like themselves uh, and not see, like, I look back on my own childhood and think, 
what a difference it would have made if I would have opened last month's issue of Vogue with Paloma on the cover and seen that beauty is not a size because that's what I was taught by the society I grew up in. Has anyone ever asked, I don't know if asked is the right word. Well, I'm going to use a word and forgive me. It feels a little, uh, a little aggressive. It's not my intention, but has anyone accused you of continuing to contribute to anything around eating disorders and mass media and, and, or, or is everything that you do all inclusive diversity? Like I I'm assuming you still walk a fine line. I totally do. Um, you know, it's something where I'm aware that on any given day, no matter, you know, as someone with the history of an eating disorder and body dysmorphia, like I may never see what I look like and may feel a certain way on account of those things. But at the same time, I'm aware that I do have thin privilege and that's very real. And at the same time, I think that with Ruthie and I running the chain, we have to be very conscientious of the fact that our field has a long ways to go in terms of representation. We're very aware of that and acknowledge that as well. I also want to point out, and this is maybe shifting gears a little bit about your experience with your eating disorder and maybe some of the struggles that you've had lately, is you, correct me if I'm wrong, did you not get treatment for like the first 10 years that you were struggling? Is that? Yeah. So I started struggling with an eating disorder when I was about 12 and I didn't enter treatment until I was 19 or 20. So there was quite a bit of time between the onset and when I addressed it. The reason why I brought that up, and and again, as you were saying how you and Ruthie, the way your eating disorder started, is I, I feel strongly that the sooner we get somebody into treatment, the less chance that it will be a, a long, 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 long battle. By the way, that is not always, but I th- I feel like it lessens it. The sooner we get somebody into nourishing their brain, especially as adolescents and teenagers, the quicker we're going to help them move through and internalize coping skills. Do you feel that had you gotten treatment earlier. And by the way, I'm not one who's usually like, let's look back and had you done it differently, Christina. But, you know, we are talking about the fact that, you know, this has been a struggle that you've been working with through for years. Do you think if you had gotten into treatment sooner, there may have been, your struggle may have been different? I think that's a very real possibility. just, I mean, even given the research of, as you said, addressing it sooner, you there's a much better success rate in recovery. Um, that being said, I don't think that I would change anything um, just because of where every twist and turn has landed me. So, yeah. I also think another thing that I read in one of your interviews is that 
when you were referring, and we've talked, I've talked about this often on the show, that not every eating disorder looks like an eating disorder. So on the outside, you didn't look like you were struggling. And on the inside, your heart rate was at like 30. Yeah. I, I just, I wonder if you could speak to what is happening in our culture that we still have this idea of what an eating disorder looks like and really not taking into consideration, first of all, what's happening to the person's organs and their soul, like who they are. Like, I, I mean, what was it like for you to be struggling in silence, appearing, appearing, which I put in quotes, to be okay and inside your heart your heart was about to stop like at any minute yeah I mean I think back then and I say back then like it was hundreds of years ago but I mean I think the field has come a long way in the past five to ten years and especially with their understanding of um like quote-unquote atypical anorexia and all of that but when I started treatment they were still I remember the first place I went for an assessment they basically turned me away because I was a couple pounds above the diagnosis for anorexia and (laughs) that baffles me now but at the time it was kind of just a challenge to like get to a lower weight and it was reinforcing that like I wasn't valid I wasn't struggling quote-unquote enough to deserve help Um, And that's why I waited so long in the first place. So I'm glad that the field has at least advanced their knowledge that weight is a potential symptom and not the illness itself. I am, I, I wish I could say what you just told me is the first time I've heard that, that somebody is turned away because of their weight. It, it absolutely amazes me how many times I've heard that story. I do also agree with you, though. I think we are advancing in that. I think that, that the field is changing. I think, unfortunately, insurance companies have not really gotten on board with that. But um, that's a whole other podcast that we could talk about. So... How has it been, and and I am going to take a pretty, pretty hard turn, um, and we'll come back to the to the fashion industry and social media and stuff like that. But you and I were also talking the other day, and as you said, a few months back, you ended up back in treatment, and you said the pandemic has been really hard on me. And Christina, again. I applaud you for your courage and your vulnerability because I can't tell you, unfortunately, how my business has increased because of the pandemic. And I don't say that as with joy. I don't think we've really talked enough about it. And can you share what made it so difficult? What was it like entering treatment? Also, what is it like coming back out? Because by the way, we're still in it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to acknowledge that while the past year has been difficult, I'm very lucky because my family has stayed healthy. Everyone that I love has stayed healthy. I did at one point get COVID, but I thankfully, you know, I'm obviously okay. That being said, I um, 
at the very beginning of the pandemic, my uh, I was put on furlough from my full-time job, which I've been very lucky because I've still been able to support myself through my freelance work. But I live alone in New York and was here, I stayed here through the worst of the pandemic where you we weren't really allowed outside and um, you're just kind of locked up all day with nothing but your thoughts. <laughs> and in the absence of having any real structure, I just kind of slowly fell back into like creating a structure for myself that was around my eating disorder behaviors. And I got to a point in the summer where I was still having a pretty hard time with it. And I knew both my doctor and I knew that I needed like a tune up. And I gave myself like a week to try and do it on my own because I like to avoid treatment as I think most people do, um, but realized that I could really benefit from more help. And given the situation, I had the luxury of time to do it. So I kind of took that leap in August I went and I had intended on staying for two weeks just as like a quick tune up, but it turned out that I was really fortunate to have probably the best team I've ever worked with and wanted to make the most of that. So I stayed for a little, a little probably two months um, and came back to New York in October. And since then, it's, you know, obviously recovery is a struggle, especially that soon after coming out of treatment. But I have a really good team set up and I feel like um, it's been hard but much more manageable so thankful I really appreciate the language that you use because I think it in a very simple and I don't mean to simplify your situation I mean in a simple way it really it, it kind of sums up what a lot of people are struggling with which is there was no structure and my eating disorder did provide structure probably, and I don't want to speak for you, provided comfort, uh, companionship, uh, something to do, something to think about. I, I don't know if that resonates with you or if, if I'm just speaking hypothetically. No, it totally resonates with me. And I also think that it's really hard when, as we talked about the other day, when the whole, everyone around you starts focusing on like, oh, avoiding the quote unquote quarantine 15 and like, oh, this at-home workout and this at-home workout. And I kind of started to, I don't know how it was for anyone else, but I kind of started to lose track of the fact that, you know, I can't indulge in these things. Like that is not for me. I need to be more careful, but I think it was just such an extraordinary situation that just kind of slid, I guess. Um, didn't intend on that happening or having to go back to treatment, but you know, here we are. <laughs> so, How has it been since coming out? Because here we still are, Christina, nothing has changed. So how are you navigating through it now? Like you said, nothing has changed, which is very frustrating, but I think we're all feeling that right now. Um, 
And I've just really tried to, I really like beefed up the people that I work with. Um, and I see them every week or, you know, quote unquote, see it's all over Zoom still. Um, and that's been very helpful. And just having more accountability with my friends in recovery. So, you know, Ruthie and others has been incredibly helpful. Um, and I also just feel like that time in treatment really reinforced why I started doing this in the first place. And I think when I started treatment, I was at the beginning of my 20s and felt like I had all the time in the world to kind of, you know, get that in check. And now being at the start of my 30s, it feels and looks a little bit different. Like I know I want to have a family and I have professional goals for myself. And I know that this isn't just going to go away on its own. I really have to do the work and I'm committed to doing that work. Um, that doesn't make it any easier, of course, but I think I'm much more clear on knowing that if I don't really address this now, it's not going anywhere and that will really affect how the rest of my life um, pans out. So, Did it have an impact on your nonprofit, on the way you were able to show up for the chain? Was there any uh, self judgment for being one of the co-founders and being back in treatment. And please forgive me. I, I didn't mean to impose that there should be. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how was it working in the field and having to go back in? I think honestly, not at all, because both Ruthie and I have been very honest and open that recovery is so nonlinear and the shame that is sometimes felt by people who have to go back to treatment or continue to struggle or whatever it is. Um, really, there's no reason for it. And that really does keep people from getting the help that they need. So I think, and I even like posted when I got back, I really had to think about it. Like, do I want to put this out there? Like that feels so exposing of myself and I'm a very private person, but Ultimately, I felt like if this could really help someone realize that it doesn't matter how long you've been in recovery, it doesn't matter like what you might think of yourself or what others might think of yourself, this is what you need to do for yourself. And there's no shame in asking for help, even if you felt like you were past the point of needing it. So we really want to drive that message home. And to your other question, it did impact our work with the chain just because it's just the two of us and we both have work in addition to you know running the chain um and it's been a, obviously a really weird year to begin with just not having the option of having our in-person um touch points and that sort of thing so it's been a little bit of like a jumbled year dance trying to figure out like what format works in the absence of having um our like face-to-face -face contact, but um, I think we're, you know, just trying to take it as it comes and do the best we can and show up for a community. Do you feel like the absence of physical connection was part of the struggle along with absence of structure? Absolutely. I think I personally went from working every day in an office with one of my best friends and, um, you know, seeing my friends pretty frequently. And that's so, I mean, New York can be a, such a lonely city to begin with. And then it shuts down and there's like horrifying refrigerated morgues on the street. And it's just like 
a nightmare. It's so, so terrifying and sad and dark. And I think everyone went through a really dark time. And then I lived alone. So I really didn't see anyone for months. And I'm an introvert. And that was even too much for me. Like I'm having the option of being like, I want some alone time now. I'm like dying to see people. <laughs> so. But that's the key thing. You want to have the option. And the pandemic took that from everybody. And especially for people that are living in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It was really tough. I mean, it still is. But Yeah. Yeah. What about your current work with social media and fashion and stuff like that? Now that you've, you know, when you were struggling over the last six months and come back out of treatment, has that become triggering at all? Is it you're used to it? You've been doing it for a while. So that's not, you, I'm not really articulating that very well. And I apologize, but how has that played into falling back into behaviors and where you're at currently? I think I can look at it in a number of ways. In one way, I really like the creative agency that I have with working for myself and kind of being able to bring my own vision to life on a daily basis through social media. And that has always been a really big outlet for me, creativity. So that's been great. Um, But also it is challenging when there's still a level of image involved in that and having like had to restore some weight over the past six months and be okay with that and then also you know be doing brand collaborations with fashion brands involving clothes involving sizes um, has definitely added a level of or added more awareness to my body than I would like to have so that has been challenging but ultimately it's work that I really enjoy. So it's one of those give and take type things, I think. Yeah. What, what do you feel has been helpful? And again, referring to the fact that, you know, you came out of treatment and we're still back in isolation and quarantine or whatnot, however you want to describe it. So what have, what, what have you utilized? What skills, what tools, what, what things are helping you? to stay grounded because we don't know how much longer this is going to last. Yeah. So I think I have just been really adamant of keeping in touch with my friends still. And some of my closest friends are also dealing with either recovery from an eating disorder or, you know, depression or substance or something along those lines. So it helps to have that level of understanding among some of my friends and how it relates to the situation that we're in. So that's been very helpful. Um, As well as I still keep in touch with a couple of my friends from treatment and we will sometimes like get on FaceTime and have lunch together and make sure that it's something challenging to kind of keep on track with that. Um, I try and make sure to get outside at least once once a day, depending on the weather, which is um, touch and go here. So yeah, I just really try to do what I can to kind of break up that isolation every day. And, you know, we are all in this together, of course. So that's been a helpful reminder. 
You had mentioned that you posted something when you came out of treatment. How was that received? Yeah, so I think it's one of those things because part of the reason that I'm lucky enough to even have a platform is because of my work and my own history and my willingness to share that. And so I felt like, you know, it was totally okay if I didn't want to share that. But at the same time, I saw that there was value in doing so. And I saw it as an opportunity to help people. And I also felt like by omitting it, I wasn't being true to myself or others. I really went back and forth. I talked to a bunch of people about it. And I think I had to say to myself, like, look, what do you, what would have helped you years ago when you first entered treatment? And I think it would have been seeing someone that I looked up to who was honest about where they are at while they're in it rather than retrospectively. Um, and so that's kind of just what I did. It felt like throwing up a, ha- a Hail Mary a little bit because I was like, I don't know if this is what I should do or not. But um, ultimately I, you know, did post a very long paragraph about, you know, very simply like where I was, why I went, what I learned. It was nothing that I wanted anyone to find like sensationalistic or triggering or any of that. Um, so it was just really a moment of acknowledgement and, um, you know, I guess honesty. Yeah. And you say, you said it was received well. I think, I think we are so caught up in living in this image of what we want people to think of us or know about us or see about us. And we don't realize that we achieve all these things by being authentic and genuine and vulnerable. You get seen, you are seen, which is what we all want to be to some degree, not by being a name, an influencer. You're seen when you speak your truth and you're human. You feel connection and support from others when you are vulnerable, not when we put on this facade that everything is fine. And like you said, you give other people the opportunity to open up and do the same thing. So I think it's very, very commendable. How do you feel, and this this might be too personal, and please don't, don't answer if you don't want to, but how are you feeling now, currently, in your recovery process? I feel pretty solid in it. I think I'm doing what I need to be doing. It doesn't feel good yet, um, but I'm kind of going forth with a sense of curiosity because I've never really um, made it this far out of treatment without like starting to chip away at you know the meal plan or like indulging in behaviors here and there and it's definitely not been perfect but I think I'm kind of operating from a place of as I said curiosity of like where does this lead what's going to happen um because I don't know I've not seen it before and I worked with a therapist um when I was in residential most recently who made a very significant impact on my recovery. And I really trust her and trust her when she said that it gets better and it'll get easier. Um, 
So I'm just putting my trust in her and seeing what happens. Is there something in particular about this therapist that had a different impact on you? It's hard to say. Yes, I don't really know how to articulate it, but she was very special and had a, she really understood me in a way that previously nobody had. And she had a very similar sense of humor to me, which also definitely helps. <laughs> that absolutely helps. I also want to say it's, it could also be partially where you're at in your life. You know, I've said things to clients, you know, a hundred times in, in groups and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they come back or something. And then I like randomly say it again. And they're like, oh my God, I've never heard that before. I'm like, are you kidding me? The last time you were here, I said it every day. So part of it is where you're at in the whole process. And I think how many times you've struggled. It, Listen, it's unique for everybody, right? There's no one, one particular reason that it clicked this time or, you know, but gratefully it was a good connection and that's really important. Yes, it definitely is. You know, Christina, I hate to say that we're we're kind of coming to an end. I'm I'm always so sorry when we have to end the podcast, but we are going to start to wind down. Before we do, is there anything that I did not ask you that you would like to say? Anything that um, you would like to share with listeners? No, I think just thank you so much for having me and for shining a light on this aspect of, um, you know, the pandemic, I guess, and how it's been a challenge for this particular subset of people. And, um, you know, like I said, I also am very grateful to be where I'm at and to have had the help and support that I've had and that everyone that I love has stayed healthy throughout this whole, whole nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And, and it has been a nightmare and, you know, Thank you for sharing about what you have gone through because, and and you and I talked about this the other day, and this is a me thing. This isn't a, a, a universal thing, but I've been hesitant to talk about how the pandemic has affected people, which is so interesting because all you hear on the news is how people's mental health is being impacted. Oh, that's why I just answered my own thought. <laughs> I I, I feel like I felt like there was so much focus on it that I didn't want to. Oh, well, hey, everybody, I'm sort of like figuring myself out while we're talking. I didn't want to jump on a bandwagon that was the popular thing to talk about. So I get very sensitive to things like that. That's just my personality. And I, I, I suddenly for a while. It's interesting. I just stayed away from it. I thought everybody's talking about it. We don't need another show about the pandemic. But Christina, I, I was so honored to hear that this was your experience and I appreciate it. And I'm a little bit, you know, wanting to apologize to everybody that I have not brought this up sooner because it is really, really important. So I want to thank you. Thank you. Before we end, as you know, my famous last question, which is Christina Grasso, 
If somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? You know, I think I tend to really confuse people. Um, they're not ever really sure what to make of me. So I think it would just say um, she was an, an enigma. <laughs> I love that. That is fantastic. Christina, as I said, first of all, it was so wonderful seeing your face again. Yours too. It has been years since we've connected face to face. So I want to thank you. Thank you for being part of the show. Thank you so, so much for having me and for, you know, listening. My pleasure. And I imagine all the listeners pleasure as well. So thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. Thank you.